A spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. If you want the magazine delivered to your door on top of that, it's only £1 a week extra. And your first month is free without obligation. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, talk to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born in South London, but Northumberland is her adopted home, where she now lives and serves as the local MP. A headstrong child, her political awakening can be traced back to a young age and the influence of Thatcher. After graduating, she became a chartered accountant at PwC, but politics was in her sights. She won the Conservative seat for Berwick-upon-Tweed in the 2015 election, a historic Liberal Democrats hold. At first, she was a thorn in the government's side as a member of the European Research Group, but under Boris Johnson, she has been rapidly promoted and developed a reputation as one of his most trusted colleagues. She is known as a determined cabinet minister who can take big outward-facing briefs, such as her current one in charge of Britain's post-Brexit trade strategy. She says, when you've got a character like mine, when stuff that's wrong is profoundly irritating and doing something about it is how I want to fix things, this is the job. Amory, thank you for coming on this podcast today. We had it penciled in, I think, about a year or so ago, but then you rudely were promoted, and the green light we had for you to speak to us had to be put put on hold as you as you got to grips with your new brief. <laughs> I think that's a nice way of putting it. I haven't been in the country much, but it's lovely to be here. Now, on this podcast, we always begin by saying, "Would you describe yours as a happy childhood?" I had a very happy childhood and amazing. My dad died when I was two, so I was brought up by my amazing and very long-suffering mother and her mum, my granny. So we were a team of three invincible girls. And I was reading about your personality as a child, and I think you had... Did you have a T-shirt that said boss on it? <laughs> yes, it was given to me when I was two, and it says the boss. I still have it. It's very small. doesn't fit anymore, but I've kept it. And I think my mother and, in fact, everyone else viewed that as a perfect description of me. I was clear and determined and I think probably made everyone's life a misery unless I succeeded in my missions. So in the household of free ladies, I imagine, as you say, developing strong personality from an early age, did you have big ambitions? Did your uh, mother uh, try and spur you on to do big things? No, the only uh, sense, I suppose, was that education was really important and I was expected to work hard, which I did. I think I was naturally curious I was one of those children that always asked why again and again and again. And when I say my mother was long-suffering, that's one of the reasons why. I was always curious. I was wanting to want to learn more. So education was a joy for me, and I had the extraordinary privilege, thanks to actually friends of my father's who funded it, to be able to be educated at St Paul's Girls' School, which is a school uh, in London which genuinely thrives on stimulating the young women there to think for themselves, to be creative, to push the boundaries. So I was very, very lucky. So were you demanding of answers or were you badly behaved? I think I was badly behaved. Uh, I was, stress on parents. No, no, no. I think I was probably quite tiring from my mother because I was always curious. But she is who was. She's a writer, and she was always there. I mean, my granny used to take me away to her house for the weekend, so maybe that was the therapy that my mother needed to recover from the ever demanding child. But I think I was fairly easygoing. I had a cat, and I was very happy being an only child. I didn't know any different, uh, so I was very good at you know entertaining myself, and I still am. I like my own company. Now, you went on to study at Oxford Polytechnic and you studied maths. At that point, were you at all political or were you, were you thinking career-wise anything in particular? 
No, so when I was at school, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. My grandfather was a doctor, but I was really a bit rubbish at chemistry. So when chemistry A-level fell off the uh, opportunity list, becoming a doctor therefore wasn't an option. So I followed my natural instinct for maths and for, for numbers and for logic, which I love, and studied maths at uni, which was fabulous. I loved it. It was pure maths degree, in of itself completely useless, other than developing your logic skills and your, in fact, your argumentative skills, which probably my mother would say already had. So I love that. But I think politics as such, not in focus, I'd become politically aware as a child, but I don't think I'd ever thought that one could be an MP. That wasn't a place that I would go. Did it interest me? Yes, I was fascinated by people that did. I thought it was for people cleverer than me to become MPs. Now, you're at Oxford Polytechnic and, of course, there's also Oxford University. Was there much crossover when you were there at the time? Because there was lots of your colleagues today in Cabinet um, at Oxford University. Did the two mix? So there was, I mean, socially, lots of mixing. You know, Oxford is a city full of students and there's lots of mixing. So I got involved in the Oxford Union. Eddie Vasey had been, he'd been at St Paul's, the boys' school with me, so I knew him quite well. And I started going to the union because I was fascinated by these debates, these, you know, incredibly erudite young people who could debate. It's not a skill I'd done at all at school, being a scientist. And that's where I got to know people like Michael Gove, who became real friends for life. And I watched amazed as they debated black was white and white was green and green was orange and I couldn't quite understand how that was possible but it was a joy to watch and I was yeah genuinely fascinated but didn't see it as something that would be for me. So you leave university and you qualify as an accountant for PwC what's the workplace like at that time is it is it quite like male heavy is it quite a mix is it fun? It was great fun so yes I joined the city in 1990 in the heart of the city, Pricewaterhouse as it was then. We were probably, I can't remember exactly, but I would probably say probably 30% women in my cohort, but a very egalitarian perspective. PW was very forward-thinking. Training to be a chartered accountant is just bloody hard work in the most possible way. You work, you know, 12-hour days, and then you go home and you study for three or four every day. It's a fairly brutal schedule. Good training for being an MP, the relentlessness of work. But it was fascinating. And you get to select an area of industry that you want to be involved in as you're training. And I chose manufacturing. I was fascinated by stuff being made. So I got to go to all part, all sorts of parts of the country to do audits and to do reviews with businesses who were Pricewaterhouse clients. And I think that's probably where I got my first taste of you know having been brought up as a London girl this amazing network of industry across our country you know I went to Felixstowe in a howling gale to count container boxes I was up in Liverpool doing work in an IT company so I discovered for the first time how extraordinary the whole of our country is from an industrial perspective and I discovered for the first time so many amazing businesses I think that probably gave me that first taste of how important the UK is across the country not just London which is what I'd known as a child. And then you eventually relocate to Northumberland, I think that's 1996, to serve as governor of the Healthcare Trust. Why did you make that move? Did you want to get out of London? What was possible? So I fell in love, the old-fashioned the old fashioned reason for moving. Lovely. <laughs> and uh, moved up uh, to Northumberland. So I, I found a, a new job in, in Newcastle working actually in corporate finance. Again, actually an opportunity to discover the industry of the northeast which i didn't really know what i discovered it was the most fascinating thing so the size of companies shrank so where i've been dealing with city businesses with you know let's say 10 noughts on it in the northeast they had six noughts on it so they were much smaller their focus wasn't about the size of the company it was about their people and i was totally entranced by that and so i was doing helping them buy and sell companies 
And the only important thing was their people. So they wanted to make a sale, that was fine. But if they didn't like the people who were going to buy the company, they didn't sell it because they were too concerned by the people. And it was a, a really awakening moment that actually there was a part of the country that still thought people first, not money. I'd been brought up through the 80s, through the kind of, you know, the big bang. And my training in the city was through the 90s. And then I, there I was in an environment which said, people are still your most important asset. It was an absolute joy. And I was, I was transfixed. That's it. I was, I'm a Northeast girl ever since. Yes, you preferred that. So you're like, buy London. Yeah, completely. 100%. <laughs> yeah, I was going to stay there and never come back. So at what point then did you decide that A, you want to be an MP, but I suppose also you want to be a Conservative MP? Did, did the Conservative answer become before the MP one? So I've always been a Conservative. I'd always voted Conservative. I have a I think, you know, a strong set of values about you should be self-sufficient, you should work hard, but you should be entitled to reap the, you know, the benefits of your efforts. And you knew those views by the time you were at university. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I think as a a very young teenager, I had a a strong sense of that. Always, always a strong believer. So my granny's father had been a vicar and a teacher, and I think she instilled in me that sense of safety net and looking after those who couldn't look after themselves. So I had a very strong sense of care for those that need it but also that everyone else should just get on and use their skills and do the best they can. So I think that was, I was instinctively a conservative in that sense. And I voted conservative. I don't think I ever didn't vote conservative. Not that I can remember. I have friends who occasionally vote green to wind me up. And I think, oh, actually now I can see that. But I never did. Always voted conservative. Uh, But I was, did I think I began being, no, I became involved in local activities in Northumberland. The governor of the, of the, of a school of the healthcare trust, where I could, you know, make a difference whilst I had small children when we were busy running two family businesses. And the more I got involved, the more I realised that if you want to make change, you just have to be in the room. It's that simple, actually. Don't whinge about something. If you want to make change, get involved. So I was getting involved. And then I was involved in the local Conservative Association because my mother-in-law was. And you sort of, you know, you help leaflet at election times. And I did a couple of those just with friends, very non-political way. I had very small children and lots of other things to do. And then in 2005, when David Cameron became leader of the party, I got a text from Michael Gove saying, right, it's our generation's term now, Amory. Come on, you've got to get involved. I said, Michael, I'm in the northeast, which is all red, let's be clear. And I've got two small children. I'm running two businesses. Don't be ridiculous. He said, you've got to get involved. So I said, all right, I'll, I'll put myself forwards, I said, thinking not a chance, to my earlier point that I thought... There was no chance that I was up for it. Anyway, I passed the selection board, much to my surprise. Maybe I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was. Perhaps there's a diffidence in there that we don't see anymore, but it was an honest surprise. And then I was asked, Professor Wood, and I I very clear in my own mind, if I was going to do this and there was any chance, I was happy to stand. I didn't think for a moment I'd ever get elected. I wanted to represent where I lived and the people, you know, my family and my friends and the communities where my children were being brought up and the world that was mine. I, I put myself forward for a number of other seats, but didn't get selected, for which actually I was quite grateful because what I really wanted was to be a candidate for berwick upon and they were kind enough to select me. And if this was in 2006. I didn't think for a moment that we could overturn what had been a 40-year Liberal Democrat seat. And in 2010, indeed, we didn't. But we made huge strides. And that was a really interesting discovery for me, which was I was putting myself out there completely as a volunteer, busy running my business day to day, that actually... People wanted someone who was willing to stand up for them and take the battering and, you know, beat down walls. And it was a matter of trust. 
And so I carried on through from 2010 to 2015 as the candidate, fighting for things that needed fixing, discovering that actually you can get stuff done even without being the MP in some levels, which was very gratifying and great for the communities I was working for. And then in 2015, I was elected, which was really exciting and a little bit disconcerting, to be honest, because I generally didn't think we could turn the northeast blue. And I was perhaps the first blue brick in that wall, which is now much bluer. Yeah, and you've kept it since then. So far, so good. So you enter Parliament in 2015, mm. and now you're someone who is a Brexiteer. I wondered, entering politics, you're talking about all the kind of the local issues, how you want to stand up for your constituencies, mm. why it was so important for that reason you had the seat that you, that you went on to have. Quite quickly, Brexit starts to dominate. <laughs> did you have any sense when you entered the... Did you did you plan for that to be the thing that you would spend most of your time on? Because, for example, we had your co- your cabinet colleague Suella Braveman on recently, mm. and obviously she took on a really big role, and that was also in the ERG. And she's saying, you know, she had so many other things she actually wanted to talk about when she came into Parliament. But before you know it, if it's a cause close to your heart, you end up letting that dominate most of your time. I think that's a very fair challenge. So we we all arrived. Suella and I were the you know the 2015 intake together. And we had a number of things. So I had some issues about ambulance services and I was able to raise those early on. And to my amazement, discovered that you could genuinely make a difference as a backbencher was that that was one of the most empowering moments, actually, to really feel that happen and to change national policy as a result of something awful that had happened in my own patch. But yes, as you say, there was this developing narrative. And of course, part of our manifesto had been that we would bring a referendum. So this this running activity about that came through. We brought the legislation in because, of course, David Cameron had been to Brussels to try and negotiate what were, looking back on it, four very small reforms that he was asking for. And in not getting them, he went, do you know what? The British people won't stand for that anymore. And so I had always been Brexiteer. So I have a, my mother is half French, very French. And you speak fluent French. I speak fluent French. Yes, you have to when you've got 32 cousins. Uh, <laughs> it's the only way to keep up with them all. And... I love, I love all my family dear. I love France. I love Europe. But I thought, I've always thought the EU construct was just not suited to the UK. That we weren't able to flourish as much as you know I felt we can as a country, and that actually we were perhaps being a useful part of a group of twenty-eight countries. But actually, for the UK, that wasn't necessarily the right thing. So I was a very happy and comfortable Brexiteer. I think what surprised me, and I blame Steve Baker completely is he was obviously, as a older and wiser MP, looking for those who would help the, the Brexit group. And he asked me to join the Conservative grouping for Brexit. And I naively said yes. <laughs> and having done that, because I was happy to talk about it and stand up for you know a principle which I was very comfortable with, found myself thrust into the limelight both of the ERG, which is sort of, if you like, the internal MPs Brexit group, but also the Vote Leave campaign. And I became a director of Vote Leave and championed all the work around women for Britain and working across the country with our amazing cohort of of volunteers who came out to champion what was this extraordinary weird thing called a referendum. Uh, And yes, that very much filled a lot of my time, but it never it never stopped that continuum. The beauty of being an MP, and I say that when I travel the world now, people say very short visit. I say I have to get back. It's Friday and I have to be my constituency on Friday. And people look a bit bemused when you're talking to, you know, leaders and rulers and they say oh I say because that is the anchor which makes you an MP everything else you do however big or small is very important but your constituency is always 
your anchor. And I used to come back to London on Monday and go and see the Vote Leave team and see Matthew Elliott and Dominic Cummings, and they'd be like, oh, you know, it feels really difficult. And I'd say, trust me, North East is saying, please, can we leave? And it was really interesting. I, I brought a very strong that what we saw then, which was this incredible both voting numbers and strong Brexit voice in the North East. And I used to bring it back to London every Monday morning and sort of energise the team that actually... In the rest of the country, outside the London bubble, there was a very strong support for Brexit. It's interesting, you mentioned Vote Leave, and I, I remember we had those Dominic Cummings blogs, I think, during the EU referendum slightly, and then when he entered Downing Street, and I remember always thinking you were one of the only MPs he had something positive to say about. Uh, yes, I believe that may be true. <laughs> and now, mentioned the European Research Group, and obviously the result comes, listeners will know what happens next. Theresa May becomes Prime Minister, starts off a strong rhetoric, begins to go downhill, and... I want to talk about your role in the European Research Group. You were a PPS, uh, mm. the first 1.4 in the Ministry of Defence, mm. but you left that role over Theresa May's Brexit withdrawal agreement. Was that a difficult decision? Did you face much pressure from your colleagues? Of course, PPS resignations aren't treated like cabinet resignations, but I think there's still, you know, something that is not welcomed by the government. So, no, it's always difficult when you're, you know, everything is successful in politics because you play as a team. If the team fragments, you're less likely to be successful. But in the Brexit space, I had always been a very honest and open Brexiteer. And I did feel that Theresa May's proposition simply wasn't going to deliver a genuine Brexit, which for me was really important. And indeed, the ERG sort of held the the anchor on what a, a full Brexit, which meant we were free of EU ties, would mean. So when it became clear that you know, the proposition on the table wasn't one, I, it, wasn't, it wasn't difficult to leave. I mean, I was sad to, you know, longer part of the team. But at the end of the day, as I say, the only, the only thing that's important really is your constituents as an MP and the person you look in the mirror in in the mornings and that's yourself. And then just a final one that I remember when we first met you were in the ERG and I think you were doing some of the whipping. So did your maths degree help with that? Incredibly important to be able to count beyond 150, yes. <laughs> now, we get to a position where ultimately Boris Johnson becomes Prime Minister. We know what happens with that Brexit agreement. Theresa May fails to get it through and it becomes a party which is... Um, Maybe it's the wrong way of putting it more proudly leave, but is is going in a clearer direction on Brexit. Mm. And it's also a government where you are suddenly seen as a rising star and Boris Johnson promotes you. When it came to the the first role you received, I think that was defence procurement. Mm. What was it like moving from, you know, backbencher and in a way being seen as a bit of a rebel? You can argue that ELG was directing the government in the direction they later adopted mm. but at the time as I mentioned more than the side to suddenly having you know collective responsibility and all those things so the really interesting point you make there which is actually you should always fight for what you believe in because if a consensus majority lands in the same place that becomes government policy so no one should ever feel that their opinion isn't valid just because it doesn't match the government's view of the day because that's how politics makes progress that's how change is affected but yes so becoming a junior minister in July of 2019 well was it was a huge honor again if I thought that uh, I was no chance I'd become an MP the idea that I was suddenly a minister of state was genuinely a surprise to me though seemingly not necessarily to everybody else which was very encouraging it was fascinating to take on the role I'd done a lot as a backbencher championing the armed forces covenant it was an area I've got an RAF base in my constituency so I was very involved in making sure that our military families in particular were supported so it was a fascinating role looking at literally kit, kit and people and how we manage the military estates. And I learned a great deal at PACE. One of the things you discover when you become a minister for the first time is the mysterious management by the civil service of its ministers 
and the machinery of government. And it's definitely an apprenticeship system. You can't really know. I was given Gerald Kaufman's book, How to Be a Minister, which is fascinating, very funny, actually very funny, and spot on. It hasn't changed at all in 25 years. But the important rules about knowing what where you fit in how government works as a minister, I think is the most important thing I learned, which is you direct. So you're not a you're not a chief executive, you're a chairman, if you like. You're directing and civil servants want to work with their ministers. That's really important. But it's difficult to effect sudden change. One of the challenges that obviously the Prime Minister had as he was trying to deliver Brexit is that it's it's just quite complicated to make the machinery of government move at pace into a very different direction. So I think that my my role in defence procurement was fascinating and I was able to bring two key uh, new pieces of kit into into being if that's the way you describe them and you know a real honor to know that as I now watch it all being built and it's the next generation of both our army and our navy's kit that's extraordinary to think that I was able to help get that into place but it was as much as anything it was a real apprenticeship on how the machinery of government fits together. You mentioned civil servants how they want to work for ministers I just wondered on that I mean there are some in the government who have quite interesting rhetoric on civil servants, um, whether it's you know working from home or I think Jacob Rees-Mogg has recently been doing spot check and inspections. Is, is your view that civil servants do do a lot of good or actually, generally speaking, want to work with the government? So yes, Jacob, I hear, was crawling through our corridors in Department of International Trade the other day. But as I've got the top statistics of any department, mostly because I've got a fantastic team of young people and they were very keen to come back to work, I think we passed the Jacob Rees-Mogg test, so that was good. Civil servants are amazing people. It's an incredibly sort of deep relationship they have with government. And they, have, they move around through their careers and they bring with them this extraordinary understanding of how the complexity of, of a machinery of government works. Clearly, there are some who are more highly skilled in certain areas. I think when some people say they don't do what they should, my experience has been they're very, very literate, very good on policy. I'm always seeking out people who are good at data analytics, who will use data because I'm a mathematician. That's how I think. So where's the data, I'll say. Uh, I, I understand that you think this is a great policy. And I sort of see where you're coming from and, you know, your logic setting it out. But actually, I need to understand it by looking at the data and making an analysis through those fact-based systems. So that's not to say that it doesn't happen elsewhere in the machinery. But as a minister, you often don't see that. So I think if there was a need for a broader mix of skills in the service, civil service, it would be more of that sort of analytical thinking, which is arguably what a minister is asked to do before they take a decision. And I think that's where some of the challenge comes. But I've never had anything but an amazing team of civil servants with me in any of my departments. Now, you're in your second cabinet position because you were International Development Secretary and then it was ultimately merged into the Foreign Office. So you had to, I think you took a time out of government in between. It's a bit strange going from cabinet minister to backbench when, but it's not for you a sacking or a resignation, if that makes sense. <laughs> so it seems it's one of the calmest ways to move between. And So it was, it was a, yes, it was a pause. I had been, uh, as it turned out, the last International Development Secretary through COVID, and I didn't go anywhere. So it was a quite an odd way to be International Development Secretary. We developed, because of course we had teams still across the world who were managing you know, COVID in some of the most poorest of countries with the least resources. So we developed a, a sort of virtual visiting system where my small team who were in the office with me would work out food or tea or flavours and we would pretend we were in the we would beam in and we would meet people in, you know, who were in 
camps or working in hospitals, supporting the work that they were doing through COVID and indeed education in particular. We were trying to continue to make sure that education was keeping going in many countries. While sitting around the table in my office, eating or you know drinking Kenyan tea or eating amazing Iraqi cake. So we had some extraordinary ways of trying to make sure that we could keep up. But it was it was a really difficult time because actually international development and you know the the, the spending of overseas development aid was at its most critical usage through that. I, I um, ran the refunding of Gavi, which is the vaccine initiative, global vaccine initiative. We raised 20% more than we thought we would, and that was critical to helping deliver COVID vaccines once they appeared later in the year throughout some of the poorest countries. So it was an extraordinary and empowering first role as a Secretary of State, but quite a strange one because it was through COVID. And now I just want to ask you a few final questions on your current brief before we finish this podcast. And of course, you're now Secretary of State for International Trade. As you mentioned earlier, this means you're often out of the country. And we're speaking on a week where there's obviously lots of the news about steel tariffs and the government's plan to extend it, which some say could be in the breach of WTO rules. I just wondered, as someone who campaigned for Brexit... You've got figures such as Tom Tugendhat, who did not campaign for Brexit, saying that this is protectionist and this should not be what we're doing. Do you understand the criticism? And does it make you uncomfortable at all, the fact that it seems a bit protectionist? So I hear the challenge and I would be the first to say we want to have, and we do have, an incredibly open market we trade through free and fair trade, which is a stamp of UK respect and why countries are queuing up to do free trade agreements with us because we are believers in free and fair trade. The challenge of using the tariff system which we inherited when we left the EU in terms of steel is that there are some country actors in the steel markets who are not working by free and fair trade systems and they dump cheap steel into markets thereby really disturbing those competitive markets. Steel industries are strategic Every country has a steel industry because it's strategic. If we needed to, we need to be able to produce steel for our own purposes. We need to make sure we have one. And it's a very expensive business, you know, firing up a furnace is, you know, millions of pounds worth of activity. So the challenge of maintaining these tariffs for the next two years, which have rolled over, as I say, from when we left the EU system, is because our steel industry does need to have a relatively level playing field in which to play to try and stop that dumping of certain types of steel. These tariffs will end in two years' time. That's that's the framework. And after that, I wouldn't be able to bring any more on. So it's very much a protection whilst the steel industry looks to try and build up. One of the issues, obviously, we're seeing, and not only in the UK, but across steel industries, is looking to move to clean steel using clean energy and producing steel in a different way. And that's something that we are working obviously led by Bayes, we are working very closely with our steel mills to help them to develop. And then there will be new ways, I have no doubt, going forwards to ensure that clean steel is the one that is encouraged and sold around the world. Last trade question, just one of the big UK trade goals is to join the CPTPP. I've struggled to say it, but I think Practice I got it. Practice makes perfect. Got it. Do you think we're on course to do that this year? So I hope so. I would never wish to give you a precise date because... At any point, a trade Very negotiation well. <laughs> can meet a, meet a blocker. But uh, so far, it's going really well. We passed the first stage. So we're the first country to apply to accede to this trading block. So we're sort of testing their frameworks. They've never done it before. So the first part was effectively, I can describe it as like exam questions. You know, do you have these laws in place? What are your labour laws? All those sorts of things. So we passed that set of tests in the run-up just after Christmas. 
And now we're into the market access discussions, which are progressing well. But obviously, we're having conversations with 11 countries at a time. So every country has you know, their particular area of interest or concern. So my team are working diligently through that with them. And so obviously, last week, when I was in Geneva for WTO meetings, I was able to catch up with many of those countries' trade ministers, who all gave me assurance that we seem to be doing the right thing and hopefully passing the test. So would I like to say I'd like to have that as a Christmas present? Yes. And their final three questions. The first one is just, there's lots of cabinet reshuffle speculation at the moment. And obviously this happens often more than once a year, often every few months. But when you're looking about, for example, in this round, lots of names of saying, oh, this briefing saying people who could go. And these briefings could have come from anywhere, you know, Quasi Quartang, Amir Travel, and your name comes up. What do you do when you see that? I mean, it's worth pointing out, Lots of cabinet reshuffle speculation has proven to be very wrong over the years. The number of times I've read that Liz Truss was going to be sacked only for her to become the longest serving cabinet minister. Um, But do you read it? Do you ignore it? What do you do? So it's hard to miss because people tend to send it to you. Uh, but That's nice of them. I know people are friends like and that. family. Yeah, yeah, I know, and uh, you know, team. Uh, I, t- I honestly, uh, my granny taught me a long time ago that you shouldn't believe everything you read in the papers, and that stuck. The wisdom of a granny at a young age, and I'm busy getting on with what is a genuinely fascinating and extraordinary role as a Brexiteer. I get to be delivering one of the key planks of Brexit opportunity which is our own trade policy so honestly I'm going to get on and keep doing that for as long as the Prime Minister wishes me to do that if he wishes to move me or send me back to the back benches as he's done before uh, I will also be perfectly content with that there's plenty of things to be doing there too but I hope to be able to carry on doing this role for a while because there's loads to do we're just getting going on our relationship with the US we've got some really interesting work in the Indo-Pacific got work going on now that we've got Australia and New Zealand under our belts to help build those relationships. So there's loads to be doing. So I hope for the time being that he will let me crack on and do that. But uh, I'm not prone to worrying too much about what journalists think. Now, you mentioned that you're on the first bricks in the blue wall for the Tory party. Obviously, we're speaking after two by-election losses, mm-hmm. one of which was Tibetan and Honiton. Lots of your colleagues are very worried about the rise of the Liberal Democrats if you look at a succession of by-elections, you know, Tresham and Amersham and others. Uh, do you think it is a big problem the party needs to take seriously? So there was. So I fought and won against the Liberal Democrats, so I'm very tuned to their long-lasting ability. So when, after... 2017 the numbers really diminished after 2015 and then 27 they diminished and people said oh well you know that's it it's all over I said no of course it's not they are a party that likes to work at a local level and try and reflect that onto the national stage don't for a moment think that they won't be back Uh, and a by-election territory is where they are at their best because they don't have to be delivering government policy they don't have any need to for instance the the winning Lib Dem candidate in Tiverton has declared that he's going to call on the government to give a fuel duty cut. Well, I'm thrilled about that. But if his Lib Dem colleagues who were MPs before him had voted with us, he would have been able to say the Lib Dems also supported fuel cuts. But they didn't. They voted against it. So that sort of ability to say one thing and do the other is classic Lib Dem tactics. You know, midterm by-elections invariably do give the government a hammering. You know, Hartlepool was a notable exception 
which was interesting, fantastic. It was wonderful to welcome Jill Mortimer into the House with us. But it is relatively normal for by-elections mid-term to see the government of the day get a trouncing. And I hope very much that when the next general election comes, Tiverton and Hunter will be returned blue without question. It's probably worth pointing out it is the biggest by-election defeat in history if you look at the numbers, I think. Now, just finally, the final question is one we ask everyone on this podcast, which is just what is the worst advice you've ever been given which you can have ignored or you could have taken on board and then thought, why did I follow That's a really interesting question. Uh, I listen to everything people say and I reach my own judgment. I think my mother would say I'm probably not very good at taking advice. I disagree. I think I hear what everyone says, but I will filter it in my own way. So I don't think I would say anyone's given me good or bad advice. People can tell me what they like. And I will note it and ponder it and filter it through the AMT view of the world and then reach a decision. So I wouldn't chastise anyone for giving me bad advice. I probably just dismissed it on the way through. You're still wearing your boss T-shirt, metaphorically. Yeah. So. It's still there, <laughs> under, my, under my shirt, like, like a Superman T-shirt. Thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thank you.